This is the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brendan Buddha. As we're recording this now, it's been just under a week since we heard about the passing of Gene Wolfe. This is the first opportunity that Glenn and I have been able to sit together and talk about what Gene Wolfe has meant to us. And as we've been talking, our conversation has ranged from grief and loss to swapping stories about Gene Wolfe and his works and even just adventures we've had while carrying around some of his books. And as that has happened, we've decided that we should make this sort of sharing a, a real part of the community of Wolf fans. And we have a medium for doing that. And so we're going to put together a special tribute episode to share your stories about Wolf, his work, and what they've meant to you. We hope this will help the community mourn our loss and celebrate what Wolf has given us and also serve as a, a public memorial, something his family and friends can listen to, to hear just how many lives he touched. If you'd like to contribute, you can record yourself talking about Wolf or reading your favorite passage and email the audio file to us. There, there's no need to worry about audio quality. Your phone or your computer will work just fine. Or you can simply write to us and we'll read your words on the air. And you can send whatever you come up with, whatever tribute you want to make and put on the air. You can send that to us at claytemplemedia at gmail.com. And something that we've discovered ourselves really just now in starting this process here tonight is that although Brandon and I often think about our love of Wolf's work as a, a single entity, as sort of something that we just share between us, we were both fans of his work for a long time before we realized that the, the other was as well. I've been reading Wolf for a long time, probably around for 15 years, though that might not be long in the community of Wolf fans. Uh, it's somewhere near half my life I've been reading him <laughs> as a writer, you know, discovering him while I was in the army, moving past the T's in the fantasy sci-fi section, which is always dangerous territory, and very very few people venture past Tolkien. But I was fortunate, I think, uh, maybe with your help, Glenn, though I can't remember, to discover Wolf one night, uh, working um, mid-shift on an off night, going to the Barnes & Noble on Colorado Boulevard in Denver and taking this book, Shadow and Claw, off the shelf and opening it and just being enraptured and taking it home with me and reading it till two or three in the morning. And I think I might have asked you, Glenn, if you had ever heard of Gene Wolfe. And you were like, yes, of course. Um, <laughs> but that that was my first discovery of him. And, and I, I've been reading him ever since. I would take Gene Wolfe with me on vacations. I When I enrolled at Temple University, my freshman year, I was a 23-year-old just out of the army, trying to convince my English professors of the merits of Gene Wolfe and that people are doing doctoral studies on him. And But most of my English teachers had not heard of him. I asked for the Book of the Long Sun one year for Christmas, along with In Search of Lost Time. I got all of those books, and that was a great year uh, for me. But one of the things I admired most about Gene Wolfe, apart from his writing, was learning more about him as a person through some of his interviews and uh, the book Castle of the Otter. And it really inspired me as a fledgling writer who had maybe some poor writing discipline and was coming up on the age where Hemingway published his first novel and not being anywhere near to completing one and learning about Wolfe getting published a little later in life, though he bursts on the scene with a masterful story, Trip Trap. 
learning more about his writing discipline, how he had to balance a job and a family and write, and he was able to write these masterpieces. I, I loved reading about his advice that writing is probably, for most people, bivocational. That still serves me as an inspiration, and you should really write for the love of it because you have to write, not because you want to get paid for it, though it's great to get paid for it and you should try to be published, but the reality is it's not everybody's going to be published. And Glenn, since doing this project with you, digging deeper into his stories has only made the emotional realities of what he's writing more vivid, where my more superficial readings uh, before this project, I was sometimes struck that there was a coldness to Gene Wolfe's writing, but now I see that there's just a really deep warmth and humanity. There is in Gene Wolfe a desire to preserve uh, the best of people who might be in the worst of cir- of circumstances, and uh, that is something I love about his writing, and he is a continuing source of inspiration to me, and I'm deeply saddened by his loss, but I'm glad we have so much work of his with us. Our mission here has always been to celebrate Wolf and his work. At the end of the day, although I think we do good scholarship here, the podcast is a book club. We, we started this because we wanted to read everything Wolf wrote and to talk about it because we love his stories and we admire Wolf himself both as a writer and a person. And this love and celebration of his work is what brings us all together into a community. Of course, on the other hand, Wolf has always been a mischievous trickster, and his puzzles and mysteries quite frequently set us to bickering about the solutions. And the episode that's going to, to follow this message marks the beginning of five episodes that we're going to spend trying to crack the case of the fifth head of Cerberus. And really, we shouldn't stand in the way of that any further tonight. So I'll repeat the call to send us your stories about Wolf and his work and what they mean to you, or send us your favorite passages. And you can email that to us at claytemplemedia at gmail.com. Hello, and welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. We have finished recapping and discussing the different sections of VRT. And tonight... We're going to take a look at the story as a whole. It's going to be a big discussion of a few of the things we found in the story that we think are worth bringing back up and re-examining now that we've finished the text. Just like we did with A Story by John V. Marsh, we're going to split up our wrap-up coverage into two episodes. The second part will deal with puzzles and mysteries, as well as the craft involved in writing this story. And, and that's where we're going to talk about whether VRT is an alien or a human, and that's where we'll talk about the different genres that Wolf plays with in this novella. But here, in this episode, we're going to focus on themes and motifs. But before we get to that, we do want to remind you that we've just released our monthly Patreon episode. This month, it's the Gene Wolfe story, Three Million Square Miles. It's a story about a man in search of all of the hidden acreage in America. Yeah, this was the the runner-up of the Patreon vote to decide which stories we covered between Operation Ares and the fifth head of Cerberus. It was a really fun story, uh, and it was a refreshing break to take an evening and talk about a Gene Wolfe short story again for the first time in quite a while. If that's something that interests you and you're not already a patron, we'd love to have you join us. Everyone's support is a huge help, and we really, really appreciate it. 
We're going to start this one off by looking at themes and motifs that we found here in VRT. The first thing that we're going to talk about is humans and animals. And then the second thing that we're going to talk about is freedom and slavery. So let's start with this relationship between these concepts of human and animal. We really want to focus on this question of of what are the differences between human and animal? What are the similarities? And what is the permeability of the dividing line, the boundary that we might draw between these two concepts? And and really, this is a different take on the question of personhood that we saw in Fifth Head, where we were looking at this from the perspective of what is the difference between a human and a robot? Can a robot be a person? Here, we might be thinking about can an animal be a person? I'll just start us off by cataloging the places where we saw this, and then I'm going to kick it over to Brandon, who's going to do all of the heavy lifting here and really tell us what the philosophical background of all of this material is and 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 sew it all up in a nice reading of what Wolf is doing here. So just to, to start, we get this right at the beginning of VRT with the epigram from Carl Chopek. This tells us right away that this is going to be the main theme of the book, this question about humans and animals. And this epigram is going to come back in a later section where we talk about the symbolism of the cat in the story. This is, in my mind, Wolf's most crucial epigram of the three in these three stories. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. In fact, I think we can say right here at the top of the show that in many ways, I think VRT is the most intricate of the three novellas here in The Fifth Head of Cerberus in terms of the way that these themes and motifs are interwoven and are related with each other and that are interwoven throughout the text. So we also get this notion or this theme of the difference between human and animal in the prison narrative. Uh, VRT twice claims that he is an animal. He does this first when he's preparing for his trial, and he says that he's an animal as opposed to a human being, that he is an animal, uh, a mere beast. He's not permitted to run free, and he's confined against his will. He sleeps on the floor, and he's not allowed to bathe, and he's not given access to a source of heat. And those things mean that he is an animal for him. Uh, We also get this when he uses the bowl as a mirror, and he, he writes that he sees the structure of his face, uh, and it is an animal's mask with a muzzle and blazing animal eyes. And he also says that he can't really speak, but what he really does is just growl and wretch. We also have the question of whether abos are people or animals. This dominates the folklore and the local legends about them. This comes up in almost all of the interviews that Dr. Marsh does with the inhabitants of St. Anne. Also, there's this strange line in the St. Anne Journal written by Dr. Marsh early in their journey, where he writes that the mules seem like people until they cross into the actual back of beyond, at which point they seem more like animals. This was a line that I missed my first read through, but on my second read, prepping for this wrap-up episode, uh, really jumped out at me. I just want to read the sentence that you just referenced. It's on page 163 of the 1994 Orb Edition, and I want to read it Because I also missed it. I think it's going to be a good lead-in to our discussion of the differences between human and animals. Dr. Marsh says this on April 7th. 
Once we were beyond Frogtown, the road simply disappeared. We had come to the edge of the back of beyond, and the mules sensed it at once, becoming less obstinate and more skittish. In other words, less like people and more like animals. And I think the indication here is that obstinacy is something that is associated with people, this stubbornness, this being confined in maybe an environment that's not their natural habitat. And this skittishness, this more this kind of jumping, trying to be free, but also aware of more dangers is more like an animal. Their instincts are are ratcheted up. We'll probably come back to that in our discussion about the differences between human and animals. But I just want to start by introducing one of the oldest distinctions, philosophically speaking, between humans and animals. It's simply this, that humans are rational animals. All this means is that humans are able to make abstractions. And through making abstractions, they can formulate systems of meaning, create language. This distinction, uh, humans as rational animals, goes back at least as far, if not further, to Aristotle's work on the soul, where he distinguishes uh, between the different levels of the soul that really increase the quality of life of the soul's bearer. Once again, souls are the animating force. And I think soul is not the best translation of what Aristotle is talking about. Some people have translated this as life force. It's the animating spirit. For Aristotle, there are three sorts of bodies that are capable of holding souls. I think this will be of interest to us as we've been reading these stories. They are plants, animals, and humans. This is basically a catalog of all living things, all things we'd call alive. All three of these things have these life forces or souls. For plants, for Aristotle, there's a really basic level of what the soul of a plant is. And it's like nutrient-driven digestion. It just eats and it lives. This is associated for Aristotle with the element of fire and heat. I'm not going to talk about how Aristotle uses this elemental chart and the workings of each of the elements to describe how these different life forces work, because he's still left with the mystery of how the life forces how the elements produce something in combination that is not material. But I thought I'd point it out here because we had a very long conversation in a story by John V. Marsh about the presence of the elements and the arguments and the problems that arise from the two ABO groups preferring either fire or earth as kind of the third element of their religious beliefs. So plants only have this like nutrient digestive life force. Animals and humans both have desire and instinct, but only humans are rational. And so I want to pause here and note that it's important to recognize that several problems arise from describing humans as irrational. I'll get into that in a second. But for Aristotle, we have to keep in mind that he is working with a a teleology of flourishing For him, flourishing is the conditions for well-being or the conditions under which you can become as you ought to be. And when we use terms like rational to describe humans or desire for humans and animals, 
We have to keep in mind that Aristotle probably thought that each of these bodies, the plants, the humans, and animals, ought to be a certain way. And the goal of being was to be flourishing, to become full or complete your becoming. And that when you become what you ought to be, this is the fullest expression of your soul. But we've seen, historically speaking, and this is where the kind of problems come in, multiple cases where humans who do not have rational capacity are imprisoned or are put in zoos or are removed from the ability to participate in any civil issue. And they were closer on the animal scale than on the human scale of what they were, what they ought to be. Somebody without the potential even to be rational could be treated as an animal. That, of course, is, is a terrible thing that has happened in the past. But it remains to be the case that for our society to function and for all society societies to function as we know them, that we still use these assumptions to allow who participates on the civic level. In other words, using rationality alone as a demarcation between humans and animals has led to all sorts of abuses for those who do not have rational abilities. And this makes me wonder if this is why Wolf has VRT early in the story acting mentally retarded. If Wolf is actually at this point trying to highlight the problems of using rationality as a as the sole distinguisher of humanity. And maybe that's why that is in the story. It certainly felt odd and out of place to me. There are better ways to beg or to act or look like a beggar. And there's a whole class of people that Aristotle applies this type of reasoning to that you haven't brought up yet, Brandon, but who are really important in this story, and that is slaves. Aristotle's scheme of natural slavery is a a moral justification of the enslavement of some humans based on the fact that they are naturally inclined to be slaves and that the people who are enslaving them are naturally fully human beings. And the distinction there is based on rationality, just like the distinction between human and animal is. So people who are naturally inclined to be slaves, the class of people whom it is morally justifiable to enslave are deemed to be animal-like in his conception of this distinction. That's absolutely right. And I am saving my discussion of slavery for when we talk about freedom um, and trying to use some of what I'm talking about here about using rationality as a sole distinction uh, for a building block when we get to talk about slavery. One thing that is often left on the cutting room floor when talking about classical philosophy is that these were men who were interested in figuring out the ideal way to live in a city with other people. And they were trying to determine what were the character traits of a person who could be a citizen. This is something Heinlein discusses <laughs> in Starship Troopers, and he leans really close into fascism, where you have to be willing to die for your country in order to be considered a citizen. I think Plato and Aristotle and, and many of the philosophers that came after them were trying to determine what it meant that man was a social animal. 
And when we get into the discussion about freedom, I am going to bring up some of the points that Constant, the interrogator of VRT, makes in defense of this Aristotelian concept of natural slavery. Right. I've gotten us off track a little bit here, but this is one of the places where these themes, these two big themes that Wolf is using are so intertwined because determining who is human is a big part of how you determine who gets to be free and who doesn't. And when we get to that half of the discussion, we'll get, we're going to get some examples of how that can be flipped on its head, where you can point to people who are not free and say, well, they must be animals because they're not free. It's, it's a logical fallacy because you start with the conclusion and ignore the work that's been done to be led to that. That leads to that conclusion. And we see this happening actually all the time with Plato and Aristotle and the New Testament and a lot of the foundational texts of Western civilization. And I think you'll see me riding the e-brake here a little bit, even as I try to discuss the difference between humans and animals as it applies to this text and trying not to get into the discussion of freedom because they are so closely related. So kind of going back to, to what I was saying a little bit before is that the, the, these these advocates, the work of advocates on behalf of people who are not able to defend themselves has been extremely effective. And now we pretty much solve the difference between humans and animals through biological means. We have a definition of what a human is that is not rooted in philosophy, it's rooted in biology, and human rights extend to all people who meet those conditions. This is the work of legal advocates and civil rights advocates, and it's amazing. It's actually a massive achievement considering that the 6,000 years that has come before these types of rights have been extended to all humans, at least nominally speaking, that those thoughts hadn't been considered really or taken seriously. And, and I and I want to say that this type of advocacy, this level of advocacy has now in some circles extended to animal rights. The question of whether or not rights can be extended at all to non-humans, what does it mean if a right of being is given to something that doesn't have the capacity to understand its rights? This is a this is a massive massive, tangled conversation that is very difficult to untie some of the knots that come up as a result. And I, I don't think we want to get too deep into it. But out of the desire to, of, of many members of our society who have voices and money and power to look out for those who are unable to look out for themselves, we've made a move to expand the community of rights holders to animals. And it's just fascinating. It's it's fascinating and it's worth looking into if you're interested in that sort of thing. Even this notion that the locus for solving this problem or making this distinction between a human and, a, and an animal is now properly biology rather than philosophy. And that because we've moved that over to biology, a, a science, an exact science where we measure things and make classifications... Uh, I'm not really sure that that actually has solved the problem. And I think that is one of 
the points that Wolf is making here. In fact, it is the point that Wolf is making in each of these novellas here is that maybe there was a small window in early modernity where biology had solved that problem, but we are going to have lots of complications about that. Here in this story, it's Mr. Million and it's number five. It's robots and clones. It's uploaded consciousnesses. It's shape-shifting aliens or any type of alien at all. We've also seen Wolf do this before in Sonia Crane, Wesselman, and Kitty, where he's really raising this question with the person of Kitty or the character of Kitty, who is uh, genetically an animal, but has all of the signs of being uh, a human being. And we read in that story that that was all about using DNA to legally maintain that Kitty was not a human being, and therefore she could be a slave. It is this exact same dichotomy, this exact same problem that Wolf is working with here in VRT. You're absolutely right. This means of determining what makes a human and what is an animal, no matter the means, doesn't exclude the potential for the catastrophic meddling of humans' desire to have dominance over other humans and maybe even over other animals. Uh, This actually even comes up in VRT. In this story, VRT in prison is being treated in a way that treated in a way that most probably would not treat an animal. And I think this is the real crux of the point that Wolf is trying to make here. We wouldn't really devise a method of breaking an animal's spirit just to have it answer a question falsely. That is only something that humans do to one another. And it's all under the charade of rationality or the belief in the rational soul. And this belief and this this rational theater that takes place to cover up a multitude of disgusting and wicked behaviors by human beings to one another, it's the thing that allows for cruelty to take place. And it's also the thing that creates the conditions under which a system of cruelty can be dismantled. We cannot leave the argument of rationality behind because it is because it is still so foundational to our legal system. Um, I brought this up before in the same way that we wouldn't prosecute a hurricane for destroying a stretch of land. There's no way to gain recompense from that. We allow for people to plead insane in court trials, and though they might not go to a federal prison or they might go to a special institution, our legal system is based on the fact that only a rational mind is culpable when committing a crime. But it's also rational minds and rational systems that allowed for the horrors of that took place in World War II. Neither of these distinctions or these measuring sticks is entirely satisfactory. That's one of the things that Wolf is demonstrating here. Biology is going to fail us if we do encounter aliens on another planet. Biology is going to fail us when we have artificial intelligence and robots. It's going to fail us when we're making creatures such as Kitty. But logos or or rationality or, or speech is also going to fail us. It absolutely fails us when we are talking about humans who have some kind of neurological problem, whether it's a a physical 
issue with the brain or some kind of neurochemical issue with the brain. And that's also a problem just by the very fact that that is not a physical thing that we can measure in the way that DNA is. And that is how Aristotle was able to use this to justify his scheme of natural slavery. Because you could just point to another person and say, that person seems kind of dumb, therefore actually not much of a person. So I'm going to put him in a cage and make him wash my car for me every Saturday, and I'll throw him some food from time to time. Uh, It's too bad he's just not smart enough to be a real person. All these forms of measurements really crumble at the base level. And the level at which they crumble is none of these protect any human being from doing a terrible thing to another human being. The problem of evil always has to be contended with. The problem of cruelty of one person doing something to another that is unwarranted, that is harmful, that is not protected by these distinctions we make. And in fact, we use other forms of justification to make ourselves feel good about the types of harm that we can do to one another. And I think that is something that Wolf is highlighting here, is whether or not VRT is human or animal, he is being dehumanized dehumanized systematically by a system and by people participating in that system who do, even under our current rights today, our current conception of foreign affairs, of being in the world as a as a representative of a nation or an armed forces have absolutely every right to do to somebody they view as a threat or an enemy. And that really brings me to the question of whether or not the abos are really animals or the free people as they're called. I want to operate here on the assumption that the free people are just that, that VRT's sense in leaves post-postulate that the free people, as I suggested, are the French who have escaped the war and moved into the mountain range and live apart from any government and taken on the guise of the abos in order and, and capitalized on the myth of the abos in order to live freely, in order to perpetuate a story that allows them to live un bothered by civilization. I want to suggest that this is the type of images that are often used in wartime propaganda. We depict our enemies as an animal or something subhuman. And at the very best, we depict them as uncivilized, as needing, as the regime that we need to overthrow has dehumanized their own population, and we need to go in and rescue them. And in the worst case, as as I think, Glenn, you and I have both seen um, through the wars in the Middle East and our service in the military, is these people not just being uncivilized, but being portrayed as totally disgusting and even lower than animals on some level. They're subhuman. And I want to bring up Leaves Postulate, as I just did, because this reminds me of Mrs. Blunt's story about a young girl who was jealous of the French girls who have their pick of all the men and yet she plays with these children who are maybe injured from a nuclear war who are living on the fringes of society and is at all too willing to believe that these children are just animals 
in order to maintain her own comfort, her beliefs about her family and about her father and about her standing in society. And that this is the role, the myth of Yabos, if we're taking VRT's sense of what he has uncovered about the existence of the free people, and if we're keeping that in mind, that this is the leftovers of war propaganda. That there is a class of French people who are capable of being restored to some level of civil service or citizenship or were slaves who were just cast into slavery. But there were probably a number of people who did escape and lived in the back of beyond, in the wilderness, and that that imagery applied to them. And I think one of the ways that I want to defend this sense that they're not animals is that no two stories of the abos are the same. They come from all different places, and they often come from the French themselves, the disenfranchised of society, and that Dr. Marsh is entirely unable to even find a story that matches with another story. And all of this reeks to me of, you know, the stories of the bandit camps in the, you know, 16th and 17th centuries, these people with shifting faces and all these sorts of folklore stories about the people living in the mountains, that the stories were more real than what was actually taking place there. I mean, this goes actually all the way back to Robin Hood or something like that. So putting that aside, I know that's a reading that my, many might not be sympathetic sympathetic to. I just want to return to VRT here and his beliefs about being an animal. I think he is struck by the fact that a human would treat him the way he's being treated and that he maintains as part of his legal defense that he is an animal because he believes animals deserve better treatment than what he's getting. And we see that in his sympathy towards all the animals, his weeping as Dr. Marsh kills animals wantonly in the during the expedition. And in a way, VRT might think that as a result of his sympathy for animals in the wilderness, that the laws that humans are subject to are harsher than his experiences would indicate. And that trying to argue that he's an animal as part of his legal defense would open him up to some leniency. He'd be able to go outside. He might be kept warm, maybe even kept as a pet. Though we see that this is a very cruel society in the way that the officer treats the animals that come into his office and that VRT is barking up the wrong tree, so to speak, to use a silly pun. Yeah, the officer is cruel uh, to all the animals he encounters, and so is Dr. Marsh. And this is how we know they're bad guys, right? In, in much in the same way that we would know this about a, a real person we met in our daily life, that uh, if we go into work on Monday morning, we're talking to our coworkers about how they spent their weekend, and someone says, well, I threw a bunch of rocks at a cat. That is not someone that I want to spend a lot of time with anymore, right? We, right? we know that that's not a good person. And that is something that we see both Dr. Marsh and the officer doing in this story. And, it, and it's, a, it's a complete demarcation. That's right. And I, I think I just want to suggest here finally then that Wolf may be trying to open up a discussion in VRT about humanity's capacity for cruelty. And that the possibility that rationality is a demarcation between humans and animals only serves to emphasize 
that rationality is a condition for cruelty to exist at all. And our ability to make abstractions and systems and participate in them as though they are not coming from ourselves allows us to dehumanize other people. And it also allows us to make some people more human than ourselves, as I think we have to imagine whoever is the leader in on San Croix, or at least Port Mizan, is a larger-than-life figure, a person that people believe is more human than they are. And we've just been borrowing the, the terminology from Aristotle and the other Greek philosophers here and using rationality. But here in the last few minutes of this conversation, we've really bled into concepts of morality or evil, as you said, Brandon. And that really might be the, the core of the distinction between human and animal is whether or not you have the capacity to know if what you are doing is good or wrong, or if it is merely something you are doing out of instinct. And so where Aristotle and others say it's the capacity to rationality, we might say it's the capacity for evil is actually how we can tell if someone is a person. It may be that what makes a person a person is moral culpability. And that's another kind of odd backwards argument We don't expect a dog who is abused, who attacks a person, to be responsible for their history and their action in the same way that we would ask a person who is abused as a child to not murder somebody when they grow up. That there is some ability of the mind to take new types of responsibilities and to take on new sorts of meanings in the world in order to avoid doing evil, even though they have the capacity for it. Well, I think that will bring us nicely into our, our next topic here, which is is freedom. And we can contrast that with slavery. So really, we'll be talking about both of these things as they appear here in VRT. And I'll just get us started again here by going through and pointing out the places where we see this theme in VRT. Then again, I'll let Brandon do the, uh, the actual work of this section. And this one doesn't need quite as much cataloging as the the first theme did. We very clearly, very obviously have a discussion of slavery during Constant's interrogation of VRT, in which Constant says things like, the only way to be truly free is to be an owner of slaves. And he also says that everyone is a slave unless they are a master, even if they don't know it. We also have a whole class of people who are labeled the free people here, which is to distinguish them from other people who are not free. Uh, And that's going to be great fun to dive into. And of course, right on the face of it, we have the fact that almost half of VRT is about the imprisonment of the protagonist, the imprisonment of VRT. It is about his loss of freedom, possibly temporary, possibly permanent. And in fact, that's the question that the story even concludes on is, will VRT ever be given back his freedom? This is a much more thorny issue, I think, than than the distinction between humans and animals. I think in a weird way, we have really bad instincts about what freedom means. And so talking about what's happening with freedom in the story, I'm going to ask you, Glenn, a lot of questions, some rhetorical, some not. But if I'm machine gunning questions at you, it's because the topic of freedom is 
it's difficult. It's a difficult concept, and it's really hard to nail down and understand. And I think our instincts about it are misguided. And part of what Wolf is doing with Constance's speech is trying to alert us in the ways in which we might be slaves in our own society and not knowing who our masters are is actually a problem. I'm always happy to field questions, but I do expect that if I get most of the answers right, there's going to be some kind of prize at the end. You'll get some more whiskey, I promise. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So as I said, freedom is difficult. It's a concept that for me is really full of paradoxes. The first and largest paradox in the concept of freedom is that it can really only exist as as a boon of participating within certain systems. I'll get to that in a second. The second is that it can really only exist given certain limitations. I think freedom, honestly, as a concept is actually best up summed up in our Declaration of Independence. And that's going to help us understand what I mean by saying it can exist only as a boon of participation within certain systems, and that it can only exist within limitations. I'm going to read uh, the second paragraph or so of the Declaration of Independence here. It reads this, and it's very famous. Hopefully, you've all heard it. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of those ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness." In this section, we see that freedom is given by the creator and that each person has a right to happiness. Again, this is a return to that Greek word that is often translated as happiness, but in Greek really should be should mean flourishing. And flourishing and freedom are very closely tied. Flourishing is a concept that is about fulfilling the ends of your own life without costing others, their safety and flourishing. In other words, it's caught up in this idea that people are naturally social and form bonds and communities no matter what, and that people will always find a way to live within a community, within a system of governance that protects not only themselves, but others around them with equal concern. We often call this the social contract. And I don't think it can be overstated how closely flourishing and freedom really are as concepts, how they need to always be tied together, how you achieving your ends is something that is a good for all. In After the Civil War in America, uh, there were a group of writers, among them Henry David Thoreau and Ralph Waldo Emerson, who took this sort of idea and even extended it to the notion that if it is your way of being, Emerson uses the word genius here, your guiding spirit to be evil, then be an evil genius. There is something that keeps all of society in balance through people being able to pursue their own ends without interference from outside forces. 
And the fact that Emerson has such trust and hope in the American experiment that the good will always outweigh the evil, that people's geniuses, that they're that the thing that is guiding them towards their natural end, their natural flourishing, their natural being, that the good of people will always outweigh the evil of people is uh, phenomenal. It's a phenomenal idea. But VRT here takes these notions a step further in this story. And I will be touching on his ideas of radical freedom and what that means and what it's born of. But there are a few things that we do need to look at first, and, and primarily this is going to be now about slavery in Western civilization. What Wolf is doing with freedom in the entirety of the fifth head of Cerberus, but especially here in VRT, is so different from what he does with this topic in Operation Ares, where he is very much focused on what is the social contract? Why do we have the freedoms that we have? Do those freedoms come at the expense of someone else's freedoms? What is the price of those freedoms? We don't get any of that here in VRT. And in fact, the only place where we get anything that might remotely resemble that is in the conversation that VRT has with Prisoner 47 about political ideologies. But that is so muddled and confused, and it's even turned into a joke, that Wolf seems to be turning this on its head and saying that maybe that's not actually the place to look for where freedom is or what, or to figure out what freedom is and why it matters to us. And here he really puts much more emphasis on this condition of slavery and how you can tell if you're a slave, how you can identify who is a slave, and also how, if at all, you can justify the enslavement of others. Right. I think Wolf at least in this piece, is very concerned about the state of freedom of maybe America, maybe the world. Maybe he's really pushing for something that is more of a radical freedom. And and, and we're going to get to that, but I am going to now bring us back to slavery because I think you're absolutely right because it's a lot easier to tell if you're a slave if you know what to look for than to tell if you're free. And I'll get to the reasons of why that is later, too. So within Western civilization, the idea that all people have a right to be free or to flourish, to participate in all communities, in all different communities across the board, it's a really, really new idea. But within the context of VRT and really much of Wolf's writing, the dichotomy between a free person and slave is often brought up for consideration. The ancient philosophers, among them Aristotle, justified slavery by using the argument that not all men are capable of being free. This is the natural slavery argument. In part, this is because freedom requires, as we discussed in the last section, a certain level of rationality uh, in order to be able to engage with real civic issues. Remember, this is all about living in the city together, and and maybe also an ability to really carry out the full responsibilities of being a part of that city, of being able to balance your own desires, which again, animals have desire as well, and sacrifice some of them in order to achieve a greater good. This is something animals are not capable of. Animals, Many animals are not concerned about the survival of anything beyond their immediate children. A- another reason why a person might be a slave, might be deemed a slave. And this is, again, 
something that will make them closer to an animal than a human in terms of the scale of rationality is character flaws. And there are character flaws in some people, according to this argument, that indicate that they are not capable of handling their responsibilities. Among them uh, are the givenness to a weakness of will. This is the word akresia, which means that it is which when somebody is given to slovenliness, an inability to organize their own affairs, laziness, any anything we might call a vice that is in out of balance, it's too much of it. It means that it's better for that person to be governed closely and told what to do because they cannot overcome their themselves. This argument for natural slavery is really an answer to a question of what to do for people who cannot act responsibly for themselves. This is not just a mental problem, it's a character problem. And these people make up natural slaves. But there is one thing I want to say about slaves here, at least in the ancient world, and it's that they were members of a household. And many of them enjoyed the privileges of being a member of a household, although they were not citizens of the society. Yeah, let me, let me just emphasize here how important that aspect of the scheme of natural slavery is, right? That that because some people are naturally inclined to be slaves, those people benefit from being enslaved, that they need someone to look out for them, someone to guide them, and that person is going to come in the form of a master, of someone who owns them and exploits their labor system for his benefit, but the act of doing that is also for the the benefit of the slave. In late antiquity, Christianity takes this up as well, but really places this emphasis on vice, as you've been saying, on on moral character, on a on the inability to live up to the standards of Christian morality, and that slaves need this. They need masters to prevent them from drinking and having sex and doing other sorts of licentious things. But I, but I do also but I do also want to say that, that Christianity in late antiquity here in the Roman world has anxieties about the ethics of slavery if all people are created equal, right? That, that phrase that we just heard uh, in the beginning of the Declaration of Independence. Christians believe this too. It's not legal equality that they're concerned about. It's spiritual equality, but it's equality nonetheless. And if all people are created equal, then why are some people slaves? Or why is it ethical? Why is it morally okay to enslave people and through the process or within the bounds of enslaving them or living in a slave society to maltreat them. And in late antiquity, lots of Christian preachers and Christian thinkers advocate freeing your slaves. They advocate getting rid of slaves, one, because they're actually a source of wealth and wealth itself is bad, but also because slavery, the the institution of slavery, is wicked in some way. But this movement, even when Christianity becomes the dominant religion of the Roman world, uh, does not lead to abolitionism of the sort that we get in the 19th century. Uh, And in fact, the great Christian thinker Augustine, 5th century, 4th, 5th century thinker, comes up with a watertight justification for slavery or a way for him to justify slavery while also maintaining that it is true that all people are created spiritually equal. And it is that slavery is the result of original sin, right? God did create people to be spiritually equal and to be free, but 
because of original sin, slavery entered the world as part of uh, punishment for the violating the commandment to not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And therefore, slavery is our own fault, right? It's part of our punishment. And because of that, then slavery is just fine, and we shouldn't stop owning slaves. And anyway, nothing that really happens in this world matters, because we're only going to spend a tiny fraction of our existence on this world before we enter the Christian afterlife. And just one more thing I want to say about this before I let you carry on, which is that Aristotle's views on slavery are not actually that important in the ancient world, which is just to say that Aristotle's view on natural slavery, his idea of natural slavery, is not actually that important in the ancient world or or even the medieval world. People don't actually buy into this, and it is not the scheme that they use to justify slavery. Aristotle is really even lost in the intellectual tradition until his recovery in the high Middle Ages. I say lost, but what I mean is lost in the Latin speaking or Latin writing world. He's extremely well known in the Arabic speaking world, which is how he gets brought back into the Latin speaking, Latin writing intellectual tradition in the high Middle Ages. He becomes extremely popular. He supplants Plato, and his popularity is at an all-time high at the exact moment that Western Europeans are discovering the New World and exploring Africa, and seeing that in Africa there is a potential labor force that could be used to economically exploit the land in the New World. And it is then, it is at that moment that Aristotle's idea, Aristotle's notion that not all people are created equal— become extremely important, become the moral backbone of the early modern Atlantic slave system, the slave system that existed in the United States over which we fought a civil war. All right, but now, now that I have interrupted you to just add some historical nuance and make sure that everyone's on the, on the same page, uh, le- let me allow you now to get back to what you were saying. That's absolutely right. In VRT, we see Constant make these arguments, as I said, about how people on Earth are slaves to the government because the government cares for their health care, one of the benefits of being a member of a household. And this is because people on Earth don't actually have any protections of being a member of a household. They only have the protections of citizenship. And Constant says, well, now you see who your masters are. But the masters are hidden from the people And so they are not truly free under this scheme. Glenn, I just have to ask you what you make of this claim. And is it a complex claim for you? Do you just dismiss it outright? Well, before I answer that, let me just nuance something that you just said about slaves in the ancient world. And I should say that I have done some work on ancient slavery when I did my graduate degree, when I did my graduate degree in classics before moving over to history, When I did my graduate degree in classics, before moving over to history, my advisor worked on slavery. And so I've done uh, some coursework on this, and I've also written a lot about it and uh, presented my research at conferences and such. Uh, It's also what my wife works on. She does slavery in medieval Islam. Uh, and, And in fact, you can hear her talk about her own work over on Agnes, our history podcast. It was actually really uh, fun to interview my wife about her professional work. So please do check that out. Your claim that slaves should be seen as members of a household in the ancient world is is something that, that definitely can be true, and and it is 
pretty true for Aristotle's world, but that is not necessarily true or characteristic of the entire ancient world. Uh, but before I, maybe before I do that, let me let me describe what household slavery actually looks like. What you're talking about here, what Aristotle has in mind, what your average Athenian citizen would have experienced in the 4th century, 5th century BC, is a fairly large family that's made up of mom and dad, probably some elderly parents as well, all free citizens. Uh, Then also uh, a bunch of children, a whole brood of them, maybe five, six, seven kids. But also some slaves, uh, perhaps three slaves, maybe as many as four or five slaves. And this is a family that supports itself through farming and through cottage industry, right? So uh, dad's job with the help of his son and probably the bulk of those slaves, so maybe three of the four slaves or four of the five slaves, is to work in some kind of field that exists outside of the city, or they might do something like man a fishing boat or even several fishing boats, something like that, something that brings in food for the family, but that also can be sold actually at a profit that will then allow you to do things like supplement your diet of fish or grain with the things that you're not growing or they're not harvesting things like oil or or butter or wine, those sorts of things. But mom also is engaged in work, right? She is running what we call a cottage industry, that is labor that is done inside the cottage, inside the home. This will be things like making clothes or making shoes, uh, crafts, making things, manufacturing things, one to, to supply the, the family, to supply the household with these aspects, these components, these material things that we need for our own existence, but then also, like dad, hoping to be able to make more of these things so that they too can be sold as a part of the the specialization of labor that happens in civilization. And mom will have the help of daughters to do this, uh, but also the help of one of the slaves, maybe even two of the slaves in a particularly wealthy household to be you know, manning the loom and doing that sort of work. Uh, they do also do the domestic work of the household. So preparing food, storing food, uh, also going shopping, which is actually a huge amount of labor in the, the pre-modern world. We, of course, tend to think of grocery shopping as something of an inconvenience. It's something that gets away in uh, our, our ability to watch TV or, or read more sci-fi novels or whatever. But if you have to carry a, a full week or a full day's supply of food for 10 people back from a marketplace that is perhaps a mile from your home, and part of that walk is uphill, that's some real serious labor, and you have a slave to help you do that work. And of course, all of these people, mom, dad, elderly parents, kids, and these slaves are all living together under one roof. They are a, a household. They're a, a, a family in that sense. And this is what Aristotle is envisioning. But that world, this world of the the city-states, this world that is philosophically concerned about living together in a city above all, uh, that idea of, that definition of political philosophy is about to end. It does not last much longer than Aristotle himself, because we're getting Alexander the Great now, who's going to conquer most of the known world and bring to an end the independence of these Greek city-states and replace this with much larger states that are comprised of many cities and changing what it means to be a political community together, making city-states no longer the highest level of that, no longer uh, an independent political community. Another consequence of 
Alexander the Great's conquests are to create not just big states, but also to to bring in what we would now call uh, globalization, a, a connected and interconnected, wide ranging economy. And so by the time that we get to classical Rome and the life of Christ, for example, and even all the way into the early Middle Ages, we're really dealing with a slave society that is not just comprised of household slaves, but a slave society that is comprised of massive uh, plantation slavery, slave gangs of the sort that we envision when we're thinking about the American South, for example. Slaves who don't live with their masters, who aren't known to their masters, who are not part of the family or part of a household in any way, who are the property of absentee landowners who live in barracks uh, uh, with thousands of other slaves, and all they do is the agricultural labor, and they are worked to death because it is cheaper to replace them than it is to properly care for them. That is the type of slavery that dominates most of the, the Greek and Roman world in terms of space and in terms of time. So I just want to make clear that Aristotle is not really envisioning that type of slavery when he is talking about that. He's not really envisioning the type of slavery that is characteristic of the early modern New World and and, and, the 18th and 19th century American South in particular. But I, I bring that up because I think that this is a good place to pause and to talk about what slavery actually is, or to give it a, a definition, which is really what your question and, and also what Constance comment here are really about. So any definition of slavery is going to have to include three things. Uh, first, uh, the notion that the slave is property, right? That it, it's a person who is owned by another person. Uh, but also that the slave owner's rights over that property include both the body of the slave as well as the labor of the slave. That's a, a fine distinction that doesn't matter to most of us, but does matter to many historical labor systems. And then the the third thing that needs to be included here is to say that a slave doesn't have a, a family, or, or really we might say that a, a slave is kinless, and perhaps even more importantly, is denied the capacity or the ability to forge new bonds of kinship, right? To, to Maybe a way of saying this is to say that the only legal relationship that a slave has is to her or his master, uh, the, the owner, that, that a slave can't get married legally, can't be legally recognized as the mother or the, the father of children, uh, even if that slave does produce children, does have someone who she or he identifies as some kind of a partner, those are ephemeral and flimsy, and an owner can destroy those relationships at his whim. And it's clear, and we've even just been talking about this, that that slavery can come in many forms. Uh, Chattel slavery, right? That's labor, agricultural labor, or even labor of crafting, like we were talking about in the household. Uh, We should say that this also includes sex slaves. So everyone we see working in the Maison de Chêne, for example, is a, a chattel slave. And that word chattel is related, as it sounds, to our word cattle. So really, that's that connection again here between slavery and being an animal. But, but there are, of course, in all slave-owning societies, or maybe I should say most slave-owning societies, a class of slaves that we might call aristocratic household slaves. And, and these will be slaves who 
do who have other types of jobs. They do things like actually help manage the the large business of the aristocracy, keeping the accounts, the the doing the bookkeeping of these massive estates. Often, in fact, being in charge of buying and selling and taking care of the agricultural slaves who supply the wealth of this household. They'll also work as butlers and porters. Uh, they'll be important for hosting dinner parties and that sort of thing. And in fact, we see this here in VRT, right? That the the officer's slave is going to be loaned out to serve as a waiter at just such a dinner party. And and also in the ancient world, and, and here thinking specifically of the, the Roman world, uh, these aristocratic household slaves will also act as tutors to aristocratic children. We see that maybe in some sense here in the fifth head of Cerberus and Mr. Million, who is a, a, a robot, who probably is property, in fact, almost certainly is property, is serving as the tutor for these young boys. In the Roman world, that person would have been a, a slave. And this is and this is something that I find my undergrads often have trouble wrapping their heads around because these types of people, business managers, tutors, for example, are going to be better educated and they are going to have a better material lifestyle than free peasants out in the Roman countryside. And so often my students will have a real anxiety about whether or not it actually might have been better if you you know were to find yourself magically transported back to this world, if it might not actually have been better to have been an aristocratic household slave than to have been a free peasant. Uh, before before I really get around to actually answering your question, Brandon, I, I'm going to say one more thing uh, about this. It's about vocabulary. Uh, household slaves, whether of the sort that Aristotle has in mind or these uh, aristocratic household slaves I've just been de- describing, uh, are in Latin called uh, famulus. Uh, and you can see that this is related to the word family. This is a word that's really important in early and late antique Christianity. Anytime you encounter the term servant or slave of God in scripture or in hagiography or, or any of the, the sermons from this world, uh, the, the word that's being used there is famulus. And if you see that rendered as servant, you should immediately in your mind change that to slave. And another word that you're going to encounter anytime you're looking at Christian scripture or any of these types of sermons that I think also should be changed is Lord. We translate that Latin word dominus into Lord because that's what that word means for aristocrats in the high and the late Middle Ages. But that word should really be rendered by master. That's what the person who wrote that text meant. It really, it means slave owner, right? So when people are talking about praying to the Lord, they're talking about praying to their slave owner. God is our slave owner in Christianity. Uh, And really, we should say that slavery is the most important metaphor for Christianity because Christianity is growing up in a massive slave society. And this is something that modern Christians, Christians here in 2018 or in 1972, when this book is published, can have a lot of anxiety about this. And I think that's one of the things that we see Wolf doing when he is writing so much about slavery, not just here in VRT, but in other places, right? We've seen him do this in How the Whip Came Back most explicitly, but in other places as well. 
All right. But I know that so far, none of this has absolutely anything to do with the question that you asked me. It has, has nothing to do with government health care being, a, a, I don't know, a sort of sly form of enslaving citizens uh, behind their back or without them knowing it uh, in order to uh, make them dependent on an institution, which is the thing that Constant claims here. Uh, but I wanted to get all of that out there because I think it's important information to have for the way that I actually really do want to answer that question, which is to talk about slavery as one end of a continuum of ties of dependence. There are other types of unfreedom and semi-freedom other than slavery. And these these can be things like high medieval serfdom, in which peasants were not allowed to sell their farms and just leave. The land was owned in some way by another person and their labor was owned by another person, and they couldn't stop doing that labor, but their bodies were not owned, and so they were not actually property, and they had a fair amount of legal rights. Uh, Another example we might bring in here, as people who are unfree or semi-free but who are not slaves, are conscripted soldiers, right? We know that Americans who were drafted to go fight in Vietnam had to do that. They didn't have a choice, and that in that sense, then they were not free. But we also don't think of them or talk about them as being slaves. And and this is going to be important because I think that Constant is not thinking about this as a continuum of different types of ties of dependence. The, The polar opposite of slavery on this continuum, this continuum of ties of dependence, is to be completely self-sufficient, right? To have no economic dependency on anyone else, uh, but also to uh, to live in such a way that nobody else, that uh, no other people can make rules or put a- any type of limit on your behavior or the, I don't know, the choices that you might make. Uh, we, could, we could call this total freedom, but nobody lives this way unless, you know, she or he lives completely alone. And Really, I think that would be its own kind of tragedy. Anyone who lives in a community, anyone who lives in a society is dependent on another person in some way or is curtailed by other people in some way. But we don't think people are slaves because they have a a domestic partner who has a different idea about what temperature the house should be at in wintertime or uh, what TV show they should watch on Thursday night. But those are ways in which our choices, our freedoms are being curtailed by other people. You're not totally free if you can't set the thermostat at whatever you want it to be. And and that seems to be Constant's definition of slavery, right? Maybe another example would be that for Constant, sick people are the slaves of their nurses because they are in some way dependent dependent on them. And that also is absurd. That's not to say, though, right, that people's choices and freedoms aren't curtailed by living in a world in which we need jobs in order to have money, in order to have food, right? Uh, It's not to say that people's choices and freedoms aren't curtailed by living in a world with political boundaries or living in a world with laws, uh, any kind of rules that tell us what we can or can't do uh, with property, But none of that makes us slaves, right? We are not property just because we have jobs and that our material well-being would be in jeopardy if we were to lose that job, which can happen. So all of that is to to say, to finally get around to answering your question here, Brandon, uh, is that I do wholly reject Constant's position here. Here, this to me seems like this is Constant trying to 
justify the existence of slavery on San Croix by saying we're we're actually better because we admit that we have slaves but of course every place has slaves every place has relationships of dependence we just call ours we just give we just give ours the correct label and that makes us more honest and actually more moral than the people of earth or any people who don't do that right constant here is totally ignoring the idea of flourishing Right, that though you may be dependent on somebody, and though you may need somebody for assistance if you're down and out, people may be helping you to create a virtuous cycle where you're no longer dependent upon them, so you can flourish, so you can get to your full state of being, so you can get, so that you can become truly free. But freedom always requires a network of people with various strengths and weaknesses helping one another out, participating in a community. It is freedom requires this sort of vast network in order for you to flourish. If you were forced to wake up every morning and make all of your own food and make all of your own clothes and walk to a well several miles away and you had no time, your time was in entirely caught up in toil, that would be a society where your flourishing would be withheld from you on some level, because there is no network that is carrying different levels of the burden of labor in order to allow you allow you to have leisure time to be the genius, I'll use that word again, you are meant to be. This argument that Constant puts out is total it's total garbage. I think there's something to it in a very dark way about how we really should be careful about who our masters are, especially if they're hiding in the shadows. We should understand the relationships with the people and institutions that have some measure of control over our lives. But that is also the cost of being in a society with other people. Constant also makes the point that the fruit of being free is the ability to own slaves. This is like a totally upside down argument that in order to have a household say, you really should have slaves and that that makes you free. And maybe he's even making the claim that there can be no freedom without slavery to buttress it. Do you think that this is a legitimate claim, Glenn? Or is this really just a sly reversal of the concept of the household or what it means to be in a society. In this case, when Costa makes this argument, he is describing freedom as being free from dependency on other people, or he's describing freedom as self-sufficiency, and in particular, an economic self-sufficiency. This is really the libertarian definition of freedom, in that you cannot be truly free unless no one can take anything from you, or unless you are utterly independent. You have no need for other people in order to get the the things that you require for life or to sustain yourself. And there's a real equation here of freedom with the ownership of property and really the amassment of wealth here. There's a real strand of this in American understanding of what freedom is. It's very much wrapped up in our narratives about going west and uh, being a, a pioneer and uh, being uh, uh, the American dream to be uh, a homeowner. Uh, even this is wrapped up in 
the emancipation of chattel slaves in the American South following the Civil War, in which part of the initial plan to do that was to make sure that former slaves would be able to have economic self-sufficiency by being given 40 acres and a mule. That plan, of course, famously fell through. It did not did not work out that way. But Constant's argument here is utterly dependent on a on understanding freedom as a zero sum game, as something that you can only have at the expense of other people. You can you can only have freedom by taking it from uh, from others, and that really certainly does not sit well with me. And I have to think it does not sit well with Wolf either. We're meant to see this as a disgusting argument. In a way, it's the most extreme form of any argument for rights, which is that all freedom comes at some expense to somebody else. In other words, all rights are negative rights. All rights ask something of somebody else for yourself. And this level where you remove the rights of other people in order to maintain your own status and wealth is, I think, meant to be viewed as disgusting. And it is disgusting, but it's the way much of our world still (laughs) operates today. And I think we can see Constant's worldview here, or his notions of what freedom is, or what it means to be a slave, what it means to own slaves, what it means to be animate property in the number of things that Maitre is doing to slaves, the procedures that he has performing on them, uh, the the brain surgeries, the alteration of the endocrine system, maltreating these people as nothing other than objects. We even see how slaves are treated in the relationship between the officer and his slave in the frame story of VRT. And that seems to be a very important part of the narrative is looking at the types of games and interactions they have simply because that's how they're expected to act. It's almost like theater. I want to bring up here and try to tie these two conversations together that VRT claims that reason is only sanity applied to human affairs. And this is exactly what we're talking about. The interplay of reason and freedom is very, very close. And the need for a network of rational people is crucial to our idea of civilization. So that may be true. And and it is by participating in a society with advocates, with people who care for those who are not as well off as them. And that is a big part of how ideas like freedom emerge. It comes from rational or sane minds. And I just want to touch on then VRT's idea of radical freedom, his desire for it. He, he wants mankind, or at least himself, to be able to act entirely as he pleases, as animals do, without regard for others of his species, his community, or his kin. This notion of radical freedom requires that a person, as we've been talking about, take on the full burden of self-governance and lose and lose the benefits and the access to other people's strengths. And so is VRT's desire for this sort of thing coming from a position of total strength where he believes he can make up for his own shortcomings if he could be free? Or is this a blind spot about himself from an already visible inability to take responsibility for his own problems? He has a penchant for blaming others for how he is where he is and how he got there. To my mind, the the strongest characteristic of VRT 
as we see him in multiple capacities in this story, is that he always feels beholden or even maybe trapped by other people. We see this first in his relationship with his father. We know that he he says that he had planned to get away from his father at the earliest opportunity. But of course, there were economic reasons or financial reasons why that was going to be difficult, systemic reasons why that might not be possible. But he took advantage of Dr. Marsh as soon as he was able to do that. And his plan was just to get into the back of beyond where he could be free, where he could be with the free people. And I I think that his use of this phrase, free people, and his dreams about who the free people are going to be, or this vision that he has of them and what their society is going to be like, and why this is the, the paradise that he yearns to get to whenever he can escape his father. The freedom of the free people in his fantasy is characterized by being free from the dominance of other people, but not even just of individuals. It's not just that they are not the property of some slave owner. It is that they have gone to the complete extreme of opting out of politics, opting out of government, opting out of rules. And I think that we should link this back to something that VRT says to Prisoner 47 in the prison narrative when he is uh, making fun of the notion of laissez-faire. This key phrase in libertarian ideology that VRT turns around and turns into a cornerstone of an anarch of an anarchism. The free people here are anarchists. They are people without rule. That's what freedom means to them, is to live without rules. And I really like the way that Wolf gives us this in two different places in the the narrative. And this is a totally different type of freedom than the type of freedom that Constant is talking about, or even really the type of freedom I I think that we tend to talk about in our own politics. Yeah, I think that's absolutely the case. VRT's idea of radical freedom, as I've been calling it here, is really like child and where the wild things are, to be taken away by this group of people who just go and have a great rumpus all the time. And that's, I think, what VRT <laughs> is really is really looking for. He has never felt that society or his father or any condition in his life has allowed him to flourish. And we all know that feeling when we are unable to flourish given the conditions of our life. Those come and go for many of us at different times, but this is all VRT knows. And his idea, I think, of freedom, his fantasy of the free people is that they have abundant food, they don't need to organize into a government because there's no problem of resources, there's no real problems at all for his idea about these people until he gets up into the mountains and he sees the sparseness of vegetation and animals. And I just wonder if it is the case that VRT did write a story by John V. Marsh, if his ideal is more like the hill people or the marshmen. Is VRT looking for a nomadic life where he's just living like an animal, just at the level of survival and instinct? Or is he looking to be a member of a family, a functioning household? And maybe the question we need to ask, is freedom actually only possible at this extremely local level? Is Does the smaller the system and number of systems you're participating in 
allow you to be more free. Well, and, and, and can you really flourish? Can you really find happiness in a life that is free of all constraints? Because that, that is a life that is free from all other people. And I think that most of us would agree that our relationships with other people, whether it's a, it's a partner or children, parents, friends, family, co-workers, comrades of some sort, that those are things that we need in our life. Those are things that make our life good, that, that, that are a source of happiness and flourishing for us. But those relationships all impose constraints on us that curtail our freedom. And so there is a there is a, a line here. There is a place where people need to be making this choice. VRT seems to be really stuck here and that he can't really figure out which it is that he wants. I think the only thing that he knows for sure is that he doesn't want to live underneath a rowboat with his dad anymore. You know, and he has this fantasy that he's going to find his mother and this other community of like-minded free people out in the back of beyond. It's not clear if he does or doesn't. We'll get to that in the next section. But he does not find his mother. And he is then faced with the choice of, do I continue to live out here in the back of beyond where I don't have to wear anything except hiking boots? Or do I need to go back into the lion's den of civilization and constraints in order to be with my mother? I think we see this demonstrated best in one of the first journals that VRT takes over on the St. Anne Diary, where he talks about Dr. Marsh's pride in killing the tire tiger and his desire to share that with somebody. That act in Dr. Marsh's mind is only beneficial, at least in VRT's interpretation of those events, because he had someone to share it with. It was a victory. And I think that is a lesson that, that VRT learns, maybe, in the back of beyond since we are already leaning into talking about VRT's experience in the back of beyond and what that was like after he took over Dr. Marsh's St. Anne journal or after the death of Dr. Marsh, I think this is a good time then to wrap up this episode on themes and motifs and to look ahead to our second wrap up episode where we'll get into the puzzles and the mysteries and the unresolved questions. And We'll lead that off by talking about VRT's time alone out here in the back of beyond. So for now, that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Please don't forget to check out our Patreon site. Join us if you have not already. You can join us for as little as $2 a month. And you'll get access to our coverage of Wolf's short story, Three Million Square Miles, among some other really fun bonus episodes of content that Clay Temple Media has produced. Head on over to the Clay Temple Forum and let us know what you think about the different types of freedom and slavery that we've talked about in this episode. Uh, let us know what you make of Wolf's juxtaposition here of libertarianism and anarchism. And also uh, something I'd be really excited to hear more about. Uh, talk to us about how you think that we'll be able to tell if something is a person in the near future as our computing and biological technologies become capable of creating new types of beings. We'll be back in two weeks to talk puzzles and mysteries and writing craft. But until then, we greet you and say farewell. Farewell.